0: Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, please check out our website anchorchurch.com.au From 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 1 to 11. Um, If you could please stand if you're able to with me for the reading. Thank you. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living and heap abuse upon you, but they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves they should do so with the strength that god provides so that in all things god may be praised through jesus christ to him be the glory and the power forever and ever amen Amen.
1: Amen. thank you so much tracy Uh, thanks y'all you all can have a seat uh my name is arnaldo if we have not met yet uh the lead pastor here at anchor southwest it is a real honor and a pleasure uh, to see everyone here today now we are continuing through our series in one Peter we're almost there uh, It's today and a couple more weeks and then we're gonna head into Advent and Christmas in a few weeks time uh, but really excited for today's uh, passage now I want to remind you uh, that I will not be here for the next couple of weeks heading off to Vietnam in uh, Monday week to uh, preach at the Acts 29 conference there uh, so if you can be praying for me uh, pray for my back during, those, uh, during the eight, nine hour trip uh, would be fantastic. Um, and last week we were encouraged to, re- to remain ready, to stay ready, uh, to give an account uh, for the hope that is within us uh, to the surrounding culture. And we're gonna carry that idea through today. Particularly, we looked at last week, and this is something that we really um, focused on at our gospel community is how is it that we can be formed to be the kind of people that will return uh, blessing when we're cursed. Uh, That is a supernatural act, uh, even saying that, to to return blessing when we are cursed. And the motivation and the power to be able to do something so incredibly, not only countercultural, but counterhuman, right? Like counter our normal human nature comes from the reality that that Jesus blessed when he was cursed curse and today uh, we're going to follow that train of thought through and we're going to ask this question uh, last week we we looked at the victory of Jesus right uh, 1 Peter 3 18 to 22 speaks about Jesus being victorious. And today we're going to focus on what does that victory actually look like. So when we're engaging with culture, when we're out in the world, when we're living our lives, what does uh, engaging and what does living out of the victory of Christ actually look like in the world? But also then, what does that look like here in this room? What does it look like to uh, live out of the victory of Christ with one another in the body of Christ? But before I do that, help me to pray. Father, we thank you. Uh, for your goodness to us. We thank you uh, for your grace. We thank you for enough health and energy, uh, Lord, to be here. Uh, pray for those who aren't able to be here uh, because of health, Lord. And, and we just ask now that you would do something special in this room. That I, I pray that those who may be far from you would be brought near. Uh, that those who may be a, a, a sleepy in you uh, may be woken up. Uh, Those who may be feeling apathetic or or bored with the gospel, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help them to see the beauty and the glory and the excitement of what it is to follow Jesus Christ, to to follow the one who has created us and who has redeemed us. And so, Lord, I I pray now that you would help me to forget the things that I've prepared that are not going to be helpful towards that end, and that you would help me to remember the things that will be. And more than anything... Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And the church said, Amen. and the church said, Amen. so I, I'm not what you would call a history buff, but I enjoy it. Right? I'm, I'm not there yet, uh, but I enjoy it and, and believe that much of our woes as uh, people, as humans uh, can be connected to our ignorance of the past. Right? We, we don't know our past and those who don't know their past are uh, deemed to repeat it. You know, we stay trying to reinvent the wheel. And, and so while I'm not a history buff, I do like it. And one of the things that I've been thinking about recently, especially with world events, uh, with the real possibility of a World War III on the horizon, is, is the way that war was carried out in past times. Right? So when two nations or people groups would go to war, uh, it would be common practice uh, that the losing side would then become the slaves of the victors, of the ones who won the war. And so you train right? You get suited up. But what happened oftentimes is when you get on the field, each side would choose a champion. Each side would choose one person to go and fight for everyone else. And so you can imagine you've trained for months, you've suited up, you're on the field, and then like Achilles goes out on your behalf. Someone else goes out for you. And you hear this general call out. Let's call him Bob, right? So Bob goes out on the field to fight versus, I don't know, Riley, right? To go one-on-one. Riley versus Bob. And, and Bob, let's say, defeats Riley on the battlefield and and Bob's victory, that's your champion, gets transmuted onto you. So you did nothing but show up to the battlefield. You're there, ready, you're suited up, you're ready to fight, but it's Bob who goes out for you and fights. And now I want you to imagine now that Bob wins and his victory now becomes your victory. Now uh, that team, Riley's team, becomes your slaves. His victory is yours and Riley's defeat is theirs. And now Riley's army becomes slaves to your people, Uh, to the victor belong the spoils. Now imagine if you having the rights of the victor, having the rights of Bob who won for you, you go and now you become a slave of the opposing army. You're free because of what Bob has done, but you're still acting as if you're a slave. In other words, if you behaved that way, you wouldn't be living in the victory that was won for you. You'd be living in uh, uh, this false world where uh, your man lost, where your champion lost. The fact that the decisive victory has been won is lost on you. And we often will act like slaves when we're really free. And this is really what Peter is on about. I want you to come back with me to 1 Peter 3, the end of it, when he says this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few that's eight persons. persons—right? So Noah, his wife, his three boys and their wives were being brought safely through the water. Baptism which corresponds to this now saves you now not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and this is the point verse 22 who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God now with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. And so what we need to get, the the vision of Jesus that we need to get today is that right now, this is who he is now. That he is reigning and ruling with all angels, all authorities, all powers, all principalities, all spiritual beings under his authority. He is what? He is victorious. And Peter highlights the contrast between our apparent reality and our true reality. By contrasting Jesus' sufferings in the flesh, but reigning in the spirit. Listen, when we suffer, Peter is saying, for the sake of the gospel, it looks like a loss. It feels like a loss. It smells like a loss. It's a loss when we suffer. And yet, he's telling us it's actually a win, We must reprogram our minds, and what Peter wants to do is that he wants to take this heavenly reality, this reality that Jesus is now reigning and ruling, and angels, authorities, powers, principalities, all things are now subject to him, and he says, okay, what does that mean for you? Well, what does that mean for the churches in Asia Minor that are beginning to be persecuted? What does it mean for you when you lose face? What does it mean for you if you lose your job because you follow Jesus? What does it mean that Jesus is victorious? Because let me tell you, it doesn't look like it. It sure does not look like it. When we look at our world, it doesn't look like Jesus is victorious. And Peter is saying we have to reimagine reality itself. Coming to church isn't just about getting some good advice as to how to live well. It's about gaining a new imagination about what is true about the world. Like what's true, true about the world. And he wants us to take that victory and apply it in two spheres. What does it look like for us to live out of the victory of Christ in the world? And what does it look like to live out of the victory of Christ in the world? Church, I want you to come back with me to the text that was read just moments ago. Since therefore, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So since Christ therefore suffered we we, we have to understand what what came prior but because he suffered what is true now what does it look like to live in his victory not our own and the first thing that peter tells us is that we must arm ourselves with the same way of thinking and what what was that what what is that but basically this that jesus was willing to suffer rather than sin that, that, that's the, the, the main idea in Peter's mind when he says this, that, that Jesus was willing to suffer even unto death rather than sin. He would rather suffer than sin. And when we arm ourselves, which is this—it is actually a technical military term, when we arm ourselves with this type of thinking, it's like sharpening our swords, it's putting on our armor, it's loading the gun, it's getting ready for battle. When we arm ourselves with the settled posture of this, just this idea, I would rather suffer than sin. That's a real question for us. So many of us would would rather, uh, um, would rather uh, deny Jesus and, and sin rather than suffer the malignment of those around us. And it's in this way when we value and when we place our lives in the posture of, I would rather suffer than sin, is in the sense that we've ceased from sin, which does not mean, of course, that we become sinless, but that rather that we have settled it in our hearts. You you, you have a settled, principled position in your life. This is the way you will choose to live your life. I would rather suffer for the name of Jesus than avoid suffering and deny him. That's a settled position we must all come to at one point in our lives. Because remember, when, when Jesus was standing amok, trial in the middle of the night by the religious and the political establishments in something of a kangaroo court. Remember who's writing this? It's Peter. Do do you remember where Peter was when Jesus was standing trial in the middle of the night? He was by a fire warming himself, denying Jesus himself. And so these very words, the words of a man who had one time in his life denied his Lord and Savior to avoid what? To avoid suffering is the one now who's telling us, who's reminding us that it is far better to suffer than to sin and deny the Lord. And it's fitting that it's this man, after he's been reinstated by Jesus, that he would write to the churches that because Jesus was willing to obey the Father and sin, so are We, because as kingdom people, as disciples of Jesus, we now no longer use the rest of our time here on earth to follow the broken human passions and practices of our former life, which is what he says in the next verse for the time that is past suffices. It's enough. You've had enough time. It's filled up. It suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. These cultural practices of the day, which are alive and well in our day, even if they put on new masks and go by different names, are things which Peter is saying, listen, enough. That's enough. The the time is full. we've, We've spent enough time engaging in lifestyles and practices that only produce slavery and death. He's, he's not being a killjoy here. He, he's trying to liberate us and say, that's enough. This isn't about Peter being a killjoy because, listen, if you find joy in these practices, uh, you, you may question whether we have the Spirit of Christ or not. This is about Peter telling us that those practices belong to those who are outside of the people of God, not because God is a killjoy, but because God wants give you the fullest and the realest and the deepest and the most eternal joy he's not robbing you of joy he's telling you to stop doing things that rob you of joy but with pulling away from these practices practices that our culture regularly engages in it will come at a social price and 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 this becomes the question for us are we willing to pay that social price verse 4 says this with respect to this They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Peter uh, says that the same people that you used to run with are surprised now that you don't. It's a verb, this meaning surprise, to psychologically react to something new or strange. And they're surprised And so their first surprise, and that surprise, that psychological uh, reaction to something new or strange, turns into maligning. Because even if you don't verbally disapprove of someone's behavior or choices, your decision to not engage sends the message. Karen Jobs again, is helpful when she says this, that Peter encourages his readers to continue to abstain from the things that society deems acceptable, even though by their abstinence they condemn such conduct and thereby possibly incur the anger of those who indulge in such things. Your abstinence is received as condemnation, even if there are no words whatsoever. Your abstinence is uh, um, it, it's expressed, it's, it's received as a threat. This is the plot line of every single crooked cop that you know, movie that Hollywood pumps out. This is the same plot line. Let me give you one example. Training day, 2001. I was still in high school when this thing came out. Training day. It follows Denzel Washington, a senior detective, his name is Alonzo, and a rookie, Jake Hoyt, uh, who is uh, uh, played by Ethan Hawke. Now, if you haven't seen this, shame on you. uh, I'm gonna ruin it for you. And throughout the movie, uh, what Denzel's character is doing is he's, he's continually pushing the moral boundary on Officer Hoyt, continually testing him to see what his conscience would allow him to do. Now, Hoyt, throughout the whole movie, does not verbally condemn, until the end, does not verbally condemn Denzel's actions. But there's a scene where Denzel and his posse, his crew, uh, they go and and they rob someone and they take millions of dollars and he was supposed to take a cut. Officer Hoy, this rookie, was supposed to take a cut, but he doesn't. And it's at that point, when he doesn't engage in that practice, that Denzel's character, Alonzo, decides to have him murdered. Right, to, to plot to get him taken out. Now, Officer Hoyt had to be removed from the picture because he'd become a threat. Not, not because he said anything, but because he refused to engage in the practices that Denzel's character was pushing him towards. In the same way, we often become a threat at work when we refuse to do what everyone else is into. When everyone else is, uh, uh, you, you, you become a stranger as such when you decide to not go out, and get blind with the rest of your coworkers. You become a bit of an outsider when you don't badmouth others in the office. You refuse to cheat or steal time or gossip and so you have to be removed. If not physically, and I I hope that like no one plots to kill you, right? Because you decide not to gossip, but at least socially, which for many of us, like I said last week, is often worse. They'll malign you, they'll mistreat you, Uh, You will not be invited. You will be talked about as a holier-than-thou personality simply because you refuse to be who you were, because you refuse to be like they are, because you refuse to engage in actions that will uh, deny Jesus, because you refuse to be who you were before you pledged allegiance to Jesus. In a word, you'll be judged. You will be judged for not engaging in these practices, and that's heavy. It's a heavy thing to be judged. It's a heavy thing not to be accepted. It's a heavy thing, you know, uh, I, I, I'm not going to be up here and saying, you know, don't worry about acceptance. No, no, we, like we're built to be accepted. It's just a matter of by whom that we choose to want whose who's acceptance. It, it, being accepted, it, it's a psychological need that we're wired into. Like, like children are damaged when they're not accepted and loved and seen. And we walk around as damaged adults because we haven't been seen and accepted and loved. And so I'm not here to tell you that you don't need to care about acceptance. It's whose acceptance are you caring about? And that's why at this point, Peter reminds us, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the quick, the living, and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, who are dead now, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. You are judged. You stand under the culture's judgment. We're we're not, listen, if you follow Jesus, and if you're here and you're thinking about following Jesus, let me just help you count the cost. Your social credit score will go down. It's not going to go up. And so following Jesus comes at a cost. You will be judged by the culture. You will be found lacking. But this is what you must see. This is what you must know, that that judgment is not final. You are judged. Yes, absolutely. And yet it's him who will call everyone to account. It's that judgment seat at the end of time, the end of history as we know it today. And the judge will judge rightly and finally because death, even death, This is why Peter mentions those who are dead, because even death, as it seems to us to be the final judge, even death is not the last word. And that's that's the essence of the gospel. The gospel is that even death is not the last word. Death is a comma in your life, not a period. It's a semicolon at best, but it's not a period. Even death will be judged. You may die and be judged in the eyes of culture and be seen as a loser, a failure, as stupid because you looked beyond the world. And even while in the flesh, in uh, uh, the world that we can see, smell, touch, and hear, according to the world's standards, we are judged, we live in the spirit. And so Peter outlines the ways in which we are to activate practically in our lives the victory of Christ in the world. You no longer live according to the ethos of Our present culture and if you're Christian here today I'm telling you you no longer you are invited into a new life you no longer live according to the ethos of our present culture what drives those outside of the church is not what should drive us the devil Satan is the prince of the power of the air and you no longer pledge allegiance to self you pledge your allegiance to Jesus which means you are a citizen of heaven to the kingdom of God and now and now, we have the opportunity, we have the ability, the, the God-spirit-given the God ability to actually walk in this. It's possible. You live from the victory of Christ in the world. This is, this is the answer to the question. How do, we, how do we live? How do we live out of the, the victory of Christ in the world? You live by living the rest of your life for the will of God. This is what, this is what Peter is saying. Now, what is The will of God. If you grew up in Christian traditions like like mine, uh, the will of God for you was often mysterious. It was something you had to eke out, something you had to figure out for yourself. It's about figuring out what God's will for your life was. And it's not necessarily a bad question to ask, what does God want for my life? You You should be bringing all of your choices to the presence of Jesus. But oftentimes, it's it's, it's spoken of as just that. It's a much broader category in scripture. Does God care whether you wear the blue shirt today or the red one? Kind of. That's not the point. You should wear black anyway. It's simple. No questions asked. All of those things are important to differing degrees. Who you should marry or what color socks you should wear or what church to join. All those things are important to varying degrees. They're not all the same. But the way that Peter is speaking about being committed to practicing the will of God is not a mystery. It is not mysterious. The will of God is simply this, what God wants. What he desires. And that's been made abundantly clear through Scripture. Abundantly clear through Scripture. He revealed himself fully and finally in the personal work of Jesus. And Scripture is now the testimony to God's gracious acts in the world through time for the sake of the world. And and so if you want to know the will of God here, read Scripture. Know your Bible. Meditate on scripture memorize scripture and in that way we are communing with god in this way you will become increasingly the kind of person who walks in communion with god and who's able then it's, it's about it's, it's less about doing first doing is important but it's about being the kind of person who does and so as we meditate and are shaped by the world of Scripture, as we, as we stop just looking at the Bible and start seeing the world through the Bible, that, that is what it means to become someone who becomes equipped to know the will of God. What does God want you to do and to be? And so we've we got to move on. But Peter is saying this, that the way in which that we operate, the way that we live, the way that we act as if Christ is king, Let's just, let's just play a, a, a mind game real quick. Just, let, just walk with me through this scenario. If Jesus is king today, why am I so worried? You know, a, a lot of, uh, um, a lot of the, the world's thinking will ask you actually not to think. Because if you, if you think hard enough about the truth, if you think hard enough about the fact that right now, stop, right now, Jesus is ruling and reigning on the throne. That right now, there's a, there's a sure promise in Scripture, and our hope is that he will return for us. He will come to get us. Why do we worry? If, if we know the end. The other day, I missed the beginning of my Knicks game. I was upset. But I had already found out that the Knicks had won. Right? I, they, I knew they'd won. They, they'd blown them out by 12 points, 15 points. But I was still watching the game, and they were down. Was I anxious? I was frustrated because Randall should have made that shot, sure. But was I anxious? Was I thinking, oh, man, I don't know how this is going to turn out. But this is how we act. Like, Jesus wins. We know this. We know this now. We're, We're waiting to see it. And we're becoming the kind of people who desire it all the more. But why am I anxious? Why am I worried? Why do I go to things that end up harming me? Why? Why do we do that? Because we're not thinking. We're not thinking hard enough. We're not thinking through the implications of the truth. So if we want to know the will of God, we go to Scripture. And then what he's going to do is he's going to... He's going to turn his eye to to not just how do we live out the victory of Christ in the world but how do we then live out the victory of Christ in this very community in this church and he's gonna highlight four ways that we live out of the victory of Jesus in this Christian community and these are things no one's gonna be surprised about this is not gonna be necessarily exciting but this is the truth and and, and this is why we must re-engage our imagination and we must reinvest what these simple or ordinary terms actually mean and what's necessary for them to happen. He says this in verse 7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, the first way that we live out the victory of Christ here in this community is by remaining self-controlled and sober-minded. So what? So that we could pray. We're a praying people. I know that shouldn't come as a shock, but prayer, the quintessential mark of the believer is prayer. When in Luke 18, Jesus tells this parable about this widow uh, and and widows, one, she's a woman, uh, two, she's a widow, so she has no man to protect her. And and so uh, she had no recourse legally uh, to seek out justice. And this widow is is going to this unjust judge, this wicked judge, and she keeps on pestering him and pestering him and pestering him. And at the end, he meets out justice. He gives her justice, not because he is good, but because she was persistent. And at the end of that story, uh, the point of that parable, that story that Jesus was saying was, if a wicked judge would give this woman justice, what would a good father do? What, what, What would a good father do when we're persistent, especially? And he says, at the end, there's this, there's this strange line that Jesus throws out that I've thought about for years and years. He says, uh, and, and it feels out of place. He says, uh, when the Son of Man comes back to earth, speaking of himself, will he find faith? I mean, what, is that? what does that have to do with anything? in the We're talking about prayer. Why are you bringing faith into the story? And I think this is what Jesus is saying, is that the mark of faith, the mark of trust, when he comes back, what will he be looking for? You can't see trust, right? You can't see faith. But what is the mark of faith? What is the mark of trust? For Jesus, it's praying. It's persistent prayer. What he's saying is that the mark of faith, the mark of trust is prayer. It's talking. It's communicating. It's relating. The quintessential mark of any relationship is what? Communication. If you can't communicate, you don't have relationships. And prayer is nothing more and nothing less than lifting your heart and mind up to God. You're already doing that. This is what prayer is. Prayer is worrying in the direction of God. That's all it is, is being anxious in God's direction. Because all all anxiety is, all worry is, is, is that towards myself or towards one another. But prayer is lifting heart and whatever is in your heart, The good and the bad, it's lifting it up to God. But like real relationships, prayer is hard. I know. Prayer is incredibly, can be incredibly difficult. Most of the time, and just like in relationships, it's difficult because of the unrealistic uh, expectations that we bring to it. I love what Ronald Rollheiser says about prayer. You would um, excuse me for this very long quote, but he says this. He says, prayer has huge ebbs and flows. When we try to pray, sometimes we walk on water. you've experienced that. You've walked on water, and sometimes we sink like a stone. Sometimes we have a deep sense of God's reality. Sometimes we can't even imagine that God exists. Sometimes we have deep feelings about God's goodness and love, and sometimes we feel only boredom and distraction. How dare the pastor say we feel bored in prayer? That's sacrilege. No, I've been bored. Who hasn't been bored in prayer? What often lies at the center of this misguided notion is the belief that prayer is always meant to be interesting, always meant to be warm, always meant to be bringing spiritual insight and giving the sense that we're actually praying. We want, (laughs) it's interesting, we want to feel like we're praying while we're praying. Classical writers in spirituality assure us that though this is often true during our early prayer lives, when we are in the honeymoon stage of our spiritual growth, it becomes, oh sorry, I missed that, it becomes less and less true here. It becomes less and less true uh, the deeper we advance in prayer and spirituality. But that doesn't mean we are regressing in prayer. It often means the opposite. And So, so prayer can often be hard. Prayer will often be difficult. Prayer can oftentimes uh, 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 give a sense of, of boredom or listlessness or distraction. But as we continue in our prayer practice, it doesn't mean that we're becoming less spiritual. In fact, it's becoming more real. Who here has been in any kind of length of relationship, whether it's uh, platonic or, or romantic, the longer you know someone, the longer you can relax. You can actually be silent in someone's presence. It's very difficult to be silent on the first date. Right? I, there's no second date if there's a, 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 like long issues of silence. But the deeper we advance in prayer and spirituality, it becomes this, that it doesn't mean that we're regressing, but it often means the opposite. And so if we're going to persist in prayer, we must push past the faulty stories we've believed about prayer and simply this. Simply lift our hearts and minds up to God, wherever you are, wherever you are, lift your heart and mind up to god and for this to happen we must continually rely on the spirit to pursue self-control and remain sober-minded sober-mindedness is so important to peter he mentions it three times in his letter to be sober-minded to think clearly christianity is not about escaping thinking it's not about dulling your thoughts it is actually about thinking as clearly As possible because when we when we push through the implications of what is true about who we are and about who Jesus is it all becomes all the more solid and so in the first way the first way if the first way we live out our victory of in Christ in our community is through prayer the second is love above all keep loving one another earnestly since love covers over a multitude of sins this was the first text ever 21 years ago that I memorized as a Christian, above all, love each other earnestly since love covers over a multitude of sins. This is what Peter knows, that if we're really going to do this, look around for a second, for real. I hate when preachers be like, look at your neighbor. I'm not going to ask you to say anything, all right? But just look around for a moment. If we're really going to do this, If we're going to do this, if we're going to do gospel communities, if we're we're going to do gospel triplets, if we're going to be in each other's homes, if we're going to actually be in relationship with one another, Peter knows something. That if we're really going to do this, if we're really going to do this thing called church, if we're really going to pursue this thing called the new humanity, if this thing is going to work, then above all things, we need love. And not just a, a flash in the pan kind of love that's high in the beginning, and then fizzles out. Another way to say this that Peter says is to keep your love constant, to keep it on. And we need love. Why? Because Peter knows that even as we are saints, we're hagios, we're holy ones, we're also sinners. He knows this. And when you put two sinners in close proximity, To one another, you will eventually run into conflict and to hurt, period. It's going to happen. And it's going to happen with the people sitting next to you. It's simply human. It's simply us joining a church. Many folks come in thinking, many folks come in thinking that this is the place that because of the gospel, because of grace, that we don't fight. Nah. We don't do that here. This is the place where we come to learn to fight clean. This is not the place where we avoid conflict. This is the place where we engage conflict with grace, where we learn, where we we receive the tools and we become the kind of people that can actually fight well. This is not about avoiding conflict or bad or hard feelings. That's fake. Why? Because I'm a sinner. And I will let you down and you're sinners and you'll let each other down and you'll let me down, and we're all going to let, let's just settle with the fact that we're going to make mistakes. We're going to sin. We're going to hurt one another intentionally and unintentionally. What do we do with that? What, what do you do with that? You can try to go find another church. Good luck. Good luck. Because it's all the same. We're going to fight. We're going to have conflict. Why? Because we're sinners. And this is why love is so necessary because love covers over a multitude of sins. Grace does not avoid or bypass the areas in our life that are yet to be transformed by the gospel. That is what you may have been led to believe or think, but grace does not bypass. It does not cover up. It does not deny. Okay. And yet, Grace comes to expose the ways that we are still sick and need healing. And in that way, the church should be a place where you come and you train to fight well. You train to fight clean in a way that leads to redemption and reconciliation rather than bitterness. And so if you join this church and when you join a gospel community, just expect it. Come in with your eyes wide open Knowing that this will happen, understanding that we are all still works in progress and we will at least unintentionally sin against one another. And because this is the case, above all, love. Because this is the case, not, not contrary, but because this is true, above all, what we need is love. And I have to say this, I have to say this, that this is not an excuse to dismiss sin or to cover it up or to cover up abuse never not for one moment but this is to say that there will be ways and there will be times where we will miss the mark where we will rub each other the wrong way where we will hurt one another and rather than cancel one another out or unsubscribe from our friendship with one another we confront if necessary in order to restore and to redeem and so we put to work christ's victory in this community by praying and by loving, but also uh, he says this, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. It's easy. It's easy to show hospitality with grumbling. We've We've all been there, right? Ah, it's almost, I gotta clean. No one cleans as fast as 10 minutes before someone comes to your house, right? Without grumbling. Show hospitality without grumbling. Another way that we show Christ, that Christ is now sitting in authority over the angels and the powers and the principalities is by the simple and yet life-changing act of simply showing hospitality to one another. We open up our homes and we open up our lives. Paul says to the Thessalonians, I not only opened up scripture with you, I opened up my life. And you've been able to come in and you've seen my Life. We open up our homes, hearts, lives to one another. Rosaria Butterfield, in her beautiful book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, she says this, that engaging in radically ordinary hospitality, and just pause, 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 radically ordinary. It is so difficult for us. I mean, I'm Puerto Rican, Catherine's Greek, Egyptian. It's so difficult for us. Uh, like we, it feels like we just have to put on like a Thanksgiving feast whenever, you know. Just like it has to be perfect, right? I, I, I struggle there. It just has to be. Like, I have to give you the best. And, and in one way, that's, that's not a bad thing. I, I want to give people our best, absolutely. But what does, but, but you can't do that all the time. It has to become ordinary. It, it, like, you have to be able to come to my house when the bathroom is in tip-top shape. I mean, listen, you know how hard I work? <laughs> I got four kids. You know how hard I work to clean the toilets before you come to my house? <laughs> But 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 it has to be radically ordinary. Engaging in radically ordinary hospitality means we provide the time necessary to build strong relationships with people who think differently than we do, as well as build strong relationships from within the family of God. It means we know that only hypocrites and cowards let their words be stronger than their relationships. She 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 doesn't. She pulls no punches. Making sneaky raids into culture on social media or behaving like moralizing social prigs in the neighborhood. Radically, ordinary hospitality shows this skeptical post-Christian world what authentic Christianity looks like. This is why Peter is telling us, show hospitality, even as we all sit in different stages of our life here today, we're called to be hospitable people. We're called to allow the hospitality of God towards us to shape our hospitality towards others as the sign. It's, it's, listen, when, you, when, when you're hospitable, the, because it, it feels so ordinary. It's just something in your calendar. Someone comes over, you cook a meal, pasta bake, it's easy, and you go home, right? But what you must understand, and what Peter is saying is, is that as you do that, you're actually living out the victory of Christ. So it must, it must imbue what we do with all this meaning and purpose that we're, we're issuing to the world. It's a sermon to the fallen powers and the principalities that Christ is king as you have people over for dinner. And finally, one of the ways that we know we're living from Christ's victory is that we are serving as each has received a gift use it to serve one another as good stewards of god's varied grace whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of god whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that god supplies why in order that in everything god may be glorified through christ jesus to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever amen Serving is about taking what God has uniquely deposited in your life for the benefit of others. Every single one of us, every single one of us, regardless of who you are, of your age, you have a gift to give to the world. God did not just indiscriminately give people gifts and abilities so that they would use it for themselves. Rather, everything you have, everything you are is to be employed. Let me say that again. Everything you have and everything you are is to be employed towards seeing God glorified. Everything. You own, ultimately, nothing. Everything you have is on loan. Everything. And it is all to be used. You're not an owner. You're a manager. Now, hey, Managers are okay, right? Like that's—it's not—it's not a bad gig. Like middle management, that's difficult. But you're like you're a you are not—you're not—you're not, not an owner of your life. You're not an owner of whatever's in your bank account. You're not an owner of what's parked in your driveway. You're not an owner of the home that you put your—you uh, rest your head. In. You're not—you're ultimately not an owner. You're a manager. You manage someone else's goods, and God will call us to account as to how we've managed what He's given us. One of the healthy and communicated and agreed upon expectations practically here that we have as people join our church is that they would be serving their community with their time and their talent by, by serving them with the gifts that they have been uniquely given. And it's so important to remember, again, that everything is His. Your, your intellect, your ability to think and to reason and to speak and to talk is not ultimately yours. Use that for His glory. Your ability to play music well is not yours, it's God. So manage it well to the glory of God. Your ability to connect with other generations other than your own, is uh, it's God. So manage that well for the glory of God and for the good of this community. And so if you're here and you call Anchor Southwest home and you're not serving in any capacity and you're not only robbing God's people of the ways that he's gifted you, you have to see this. You're not only doing that, but you're robbing yourself from activating the gifts that God has given you for the sake of his people and for the sake of his glory. I'm I'm almost done. And so this is the reality. reality. I'm going to call the band up. I'm almost done. I think I'm almost done. Come on, come on. And so this this is the reality that we must reckon with this morning. That if, I'll leave that as an if for you right now. If Christ is risen if christ has defeated satan sin and death on the cross if christ has ascended to the right hand of the father if angels and authorities and spiritual beings and powers and principalities have been subjected to christ if he is the victor that means something It means something for you. It means that if we're going to be and act like redeemed humanity, if we're going to walk the talk, then in this world we will choose to suffer rather than sin. And in this church we will be people of prayer a people of love, a people of hospitality, a people of service, and not because we're better than anyone or we think we are more moral than anyone else. This is not based on our performance, not because we think we can earn God's love because Christ in God has displayed already the full extent of his love toward us. Do you know that the cross does not change God's heart about you? It just reveals it. It reveals that he's always loved you, it reveals that, that when God came in the flesh, when God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, that the greatest event in history, literally, how we divide time. Himself, he became our redemption. He prayed for us, and he's still praying for us. Imagine imagine if, if, if you knew... I, 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 Imagine if you saw or you overheard Jesus praying for you. What would that do for you? Like Jesus not only prayed for us, we see that in the upper room, but he continues to pray for us even now. Who himself, through his love, not only covered our sin, but made away with it, so that we no longer now stand under the judgment of sin. We may still live with the presence of it, and one day that will be gone as well. But he has, before his holy sight has made us clean, he's covered our sin. Who himself does not condemn us, but on the last day uh, has absorbed the wrath that was due to us. We now live with him who has gone away to prepare a place. Who is more hospitable than Jesus? Who says, I will go and I will prepare a place for you. I, 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 I'm, I'm building something for you, just for you. There's this beautiful scene in the book of Revelation where, where Jesus is uh, uh, issuing his letters to the seven churches, right, in, 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 in Asia Minor. And, and to one of those churches, he says that to the one who conquers, I will give him a white stone with a name that only he knows. One day, as we conquer in Christ, and when we see him, And when we actually, with our physical eyes, see his victory, not not only believe and trust now, but as we see his victory, he will give you a white stone with a name that only you know. No one else. He's preparing a place for us. And now we get to serve with the one, not to prove ourselves, but we get to serve with the one who actually came to serve us. And if we're ever going to receive Jesus, As Lord, as Savior, as King, as Master, you must receive him as servant first. There's that beautiful scene in John uh, 13 where where he's washing the feet of the disciples, even the one who's about to betray him. And he goes up to this man, Peter. He's about to wash Peter's feet. And Peter says, what? No, not in a million years will you wash my feet, Lord. Like, no, you're, you're the Messiah. You're the King. You're not washing my feet. You know what Jesus says? He says, unless you allow me to wash your feet, you have no part in me. And so we could accept him as Lord, as Savior, as Master, as King, as Messiah. But if you don't accept Jesus as servant first, if you're not served first by him, he says, you have no part in me. So we must receive him. We serve, why? Because the King served. And when we're living out of the victory of Christ, we're living with the grain of the universe regardless of what we see and when that happens god gets all the glory let me pray father we thank you for your goodness to us we thank you for your grace we thank you for your mercy we ask holy spirit that you would take these broken words of mine and that you would plant them in the souls the hearts the minds of your people and that beautiful things would come forth you promise in your word that your word when it goes out it does not return void And so do whatever you want to do with this word, Jesus. It is yours to do with. This is your church, not mine. And so Jesus, do something beautiful in the hearts, in the minds, in the imaginations, in the desires, in the will of your people. We thank you, Holy Spirit. We thank you for... We thank you for Scripture. We we thank you that you inspired these men to write down the testimonies of God. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to not only be hearers of the word now, but doers. We thank you and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And the church says...